We're in the book of Hebrews, and we're uh, this morning in the second chapter, so please find that on your Bible or in your Bible. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but be healed. They were strangers in a foreign land. They were outcasts from their family. They were atheists in the eyes of their former spiritual leaders. They were suspected terrorists in the eyes of the political authorities. They, as the fleeing David said to his BF Jonathan, were just one step removed from death. Like my own father 12 years ago as he drew closer to the end of his earthly life, their grip on their faith was beginning to slip slowly away. They desperately needed a message of hope, a believable pep talk to restore their faith. Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So the letter writer, one who was well known to the first readers, although he is unknown to us, reminds them of the grand plan of God and the process by which his purposes would be accomplished, even as the battle rages and even though they presently find themselves in the crossfire of a cosmic conflict, their ultimate victory is sure. We will one day reign and rule with him over all that on this day seems to reign and rule over us. Hebrews chapter 1, going to read extendedly this morning, verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Verse 7 of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is, in the, is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And he also said, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits 
sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They needed a word of encouragement, and he gives them this word of encouragement. He comforts the afflicted, and as we said last week, but he also pastorally effective. He, he afflicts the comforted. That's what you have in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. It's like a parenthetical thrown into the narrative. So we pick it up in verse 5. For it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, but you have crowned him now with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but, I love this, we do not yet see, but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. I, uh, I went back to my office. I shut the game off right after uh, ACDC last evening and awakened this morning uh, to realize that after I shut the game off, we didn't score one more time. I was feeling this enormous sense of responsibility, as Troy said, like, like the prophets that held up the hands of Moses, I was desperately needed. But I don't know of a passage in uh, Hebrews that I have wrestled with more than this one. It, there, is, there is so much in this, when you dust the surface off to find the depths of the nuggets. So, by God's grace, I've, I've broken it into a four-point outline that hopefully properly frames this great passage. The first thing that we learn in verse 9 is that his death was our death. And when putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. And then he goes on to say, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We talked about this last week. His human name, the name that Gabriel told his supposed father Joseph to give him, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. For a little while, in order to save people from their sin, he had to be, as it were, lower than the angels. You see, it was 
necessary for him to accomplish the rescue that the curse that had been brought about by the rebellion in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, if, if rule and reign and dignity was to be restored to the humans, somebody had to do something about the curse. And only another human could do something adequately about it. So Jesus, the eternal Son of God, seated at the right hand of the Father, had to become one of us. He has, as I said, he had to come to earth in order to pave for us a way to heaven. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But having done that, having paid the price for our sin, having died in our place, the Father stamped his approval upon his substitutionary offering. Romans chapter 1, verse 4, he declared him to be his son through the resurrection from the dead. But it wasn't enough that he was simply raised from the dead, but he was raised and ascended to be seated at the Father's right hand, where we now know that he is crowned with glory and honor. And he was given the glory and the honor because of the suffering of death. Interesting phrase. You see, the problem that the Hebrews were having is, is that the prophets of old were revered because the words that they spoke were the words of God. The angels who administered repeatedly down through their history were messengers sent from God. Now, the prophets had lived for their season, and they, like the Genesis 5 parade to the cemetery, they lived, they served, and they died. But angels don't die. How could it be that the one that was the assurance of their eternal life, that, that the one that made it possible for them to be rightly reconnected to God, how could he be greater than the angels if he came and he died. So because of the suffering of death, when he talks about the suffering here, in that you pack all of the details of the life of Jesus, his, his birth in humble circumstances to, a, to an unwed teenage mother and delivery in a stable in Bethlehem, a town that did not have good reputation apart from the fact that David himself was from that area, that, that he grew up as a human being. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn to memorize in, in, in Hebrew Awana, the verses that he himself had breathed in, spoken. He, he lived an earthly human life. He, he was tired and weary and hungry. And, and he, was, he was popular for a season. And then the popularity went away and suddenly he finds that all of those who had at once followed him no longer followed him anymore. And then ultimately, one of the 12 that he had chosen kissed him off in the garden and he ends up being beaten and falsely accused and nailed to a cross. That's what he's talking about. Because of the suffering of death, he, he submitted to the consequences or the price tag of your sin and mine. The wages of sin is death. And no matter how we die, rather, as they say, he died peacefully. Well, most people don't. We say that just because it makes us feel better. Or, or he, he died 
cruelly. It doesn't matter. It's appointed, he'll tell us in chapter 7, unto man once to die. Death is inevitable, and he came and he died, but his death was a suffering death. Why? Because the innocent and holy one who had never done one thing wrong in his whole life. I've always said that the most miserable calling in life must have been to have been the younger brother of Jesus. Mom, why doesn't Jesus ever get in trouble? Why don't you ever put Jesus in time out? You know, why don't you ever take the keys to the family chariot away from Jesus? Well, I've never caught him doing anything wrong. That one felt the weight of all of the guilt of every human being that was ever born into the world on his shoulders on the cross. It was through the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, that's, that's, that's a weird phrase, that Jesus was not brutally murdered, but in fact, he came, he was the one that was slain before the foundation of the earth. He came for the specific purpose that he would die. That's why Peter, when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost, says in Acts chapter 2, this one that you nailed to the cross through the hands of wicked men, God raised from the dead. Well, how did he end up dying? Because it was God's will. God appointed him to die. That's the grace of God. That God's love for us was so much that he was willing to give the dearest thing in his life in our place so that he might taste death for everyone. This is not like uh, going out to a Zesto's and uh, each of you getting a different flavor. And, you know, even, even during COVID, when it's in the family, you just kind of pass it around. Everybody takes a lick to find out what they want. He's not talking here about just a casual lick of the cone here. He's talking about he absorbed all of the reality of death and he did it for everyone. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish, but he would have everlasting life. That one who was willing to die in your place and mine, that one is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. It was confusing to the disciples. It took them till after his ascension to figure it out, because he was fully man while he was fully God. Our redemption depends as much on his humanity as it does on his deity. He couldn't be one or the other. He had to be both in order to save us. They asked questions like, who is this who multiplies food at will? Or who is this who stills the winds and the waves simply by his voice? Or who is this who walks on the waters? Or commands a fish to deliver a coin. Or dismisses diseases simply by the touch of his hand. Who is this that can bring the dead back to life? He has descended into his glory. It is none other than the eternal Son of God. His death becomes our death. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. The Apostle Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. 
Yet not I, but it's Christ who lives in me. This life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, the whole the first half of Romans chapter 6 speaks to it. But do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 9 tells us that his death was also our death. We have paid the penalty for our personal sin because in Christ Jesus, he died in our place. So verse 10 tells us that his glory now has become our glory. For it was fitting, it was appropriate, and you say that about God, how, how is it reasonable, how does it align with who God is? It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, he's speaking here of God the Father now, it was fitting that he, God the Father, for whom, by whom all things exist, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, in bringing many sons to glory, there he's talking about you and me, the rescued, the captives set free, should make the founder of their salvation, that is the son, the captain, the leader of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Now you can see why it took me so long to put a sermon together. It was fitting, it was appropriate to who God is, that He, the Father, and so there's no question about it, the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, we're back now to the triumphal entry. Remember when a commander would go out and he would lead his forces against the enemy, and when he had soundly defeated them, <coughs> excuse me, they would, they would meet him at the great gate as he returned to the city, and this big parade would take place, and Following him were all of those captives that he had taken, many of whom were so weary from the abuse and the mistreatment of the commanders over them, the kings over them, the rulers, that they were, they were finally set free. He brings this parade. That's us, you and me. He has rescued us from our bondage and our captivity to sin and Satan, and he has delivered us. He has set us free. He is bringing us to glory. What glory? His glory. His glory, His radiance. We are in Him, as Paul said 169 times, we are in Christ Jesus. That's the secret that He should make the founder, that is the champion, the leader, the one that leads the way, the one that fought the battle and won the victory, that sets the path. He came from heaven to earth in order to show us the way to go from earth to heaven. It's the old, as he said in John chapter 1, you remember Jacob's ladder and the angels were ascending and descending from that. He says, you are seeing Jacob's ladder. I am the one, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that he should be perfected through suffering. How can he who is sinless and spotless be perfected. And the word there, it means that he should be brought to completion. Or literally, it is a salvation that required the full participation. He says in Philippians chapter 2 that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. There was a spiritual war that was taking place 
in the Garden of Gethsemane. In order for Jesus to pave the way for us into God's presence, He had to go through Gethsemane and Golgotha. And there was a battle in Gethsemane where He said, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He, he had to come to completion through the suffering. Now the beauty of the battle that Jesus waged is that as painful and difficult and dark as the journey, he knew the outcome. So later on, when we, in a few months when we get to Hebrews, or a year or two, when we get to Hebrews chapter 12, he's, he's going to say, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. He knew the end of the story. We know the end of the story. We've read the last chapter, Revelation 21 and 22. But in order to accomplish that, he had to be obedient all the way. He came to recapture for us our lost destiny. We were created, as we said last week, to rule over all things. We, we are to be the co-regents with God over all that he created. But because of our sin, we have been placed on temporary probation. We are incapable of ruling the world. We can't even rule ourselves. Our own fleshly passions dominate us. And yet, Christ Jesus came to rescue us, to restore us to God's original purpose. We will one day, with Christ Jesus, ultimately rule His glory as the as the master of all that's been created will be shared by us who are seated with Him. He, he came to restore the lost unity. We are broken and we fight. Families are divided. Not only do politics divide families, but now COVID and masks and all kinds of and sticks in the arm and everything. We're, we are divided people. It used to be all the church worried about was theological distinctives and now suddenly it's political and it's social and it's medical and all of that. He came in order to bring back together that which Satan so skillfully has split apart. And he restored us to our lost certainty. God doesn't want... The reason that Hebrews is written, again as we said a few weeks ago, it is written to three particular groups of people. Those who have genuinely rested their faith and trust in Jesus' finished work on their behalf. But the, the pressure, it didn't turn out to be quite as smooth and quite as joyful and quite as blessed as they thought it was going to be. And they're wavering in their decision. He wrote to them to assure them, don't give up. Don't give up. And then there are those who intellectually agree with all of it. But they hesitate at surrendering their heart and their soul and their life because there are a few things they love more than that. Some of you are those. You, you've got Timothy trophies and all of that stuff. You've probably even babysat in the nursery as a ministry. But the reality is that you have mentally agreed, yeah, this is all good stuff. This all seems true. But you've never humbled yourself to bow the knee of your heart and admitted that you need a Savior. And then there's those who say, I, I don't get it. That, it seems I'm, I'm still here. 1 Corinthians 14 says that there are, there are here this morning, and will be in the second hour, some who are still asking the question, is this for real? And the convicting thing about 1 Corinthians 14 
is that if those people are among us, that because we sing like we really believe we are honoring and glorifying the one who redeemed us, and we, we take seriously what he says in his word, that, and we, we fellowship and encourage and enrich one another, that as we leave, they will leave and go, whoa, I have a feeling that God was there. There's a fear comes on them. He's written for all of those. He has come to restore our lost certainty. First John chapter 5, verse 13. This is, this is, that was the verse that transformed my father at age 19. We have written these things to you so that you might know that you have eternal life. It doesn't have to be, I hope so. I, I, kinda, I kind of expect it so. But John says you can know. He came to restore that. Man's created purpose on this earth was to make visible the invisible God. We are his image bearers. By seeing us, we're to be reminded of how God thinks, how God feels, how God responds, what God values. His glory is our glory. Verse 11 says that his holiness is our holiness. Now we've gone from the Father that for fitting for Him by whom and for whom all things are existed, and the Son who was the founder, the champion, the captain of our salvation. Now we come to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. What is that source? It is the third person of the Godhead. It is the Spirit of God that sanctifies. That's a heavy word. It simply means to make holy, that is, to designate or to dedicate something for sacred use. So he who sanctifies, sets apart for sacred use, and those who are sanctified, that is, set apart for sacred use, all have one source, that is, the work of God. You, you are set apart. You Hebrews who are living homelessly and fearfully in the shadow of the Roman emperor's throne, and, and you are outcast from your religion, you're outcast from your family, you're outcast from your society, you're constantly under suspicion and fear of death, you need to understand that God, by His grace, chose you and set you apart for a special sacred purpose. For that reason, He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to say that I'm his brother. Notice then verse 11 connects to verse 12 where he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. You see, we, we bear the family name by faith alone. We, we are not born into the family of God. We are born again into the family of God. We are not his natural children. We are his adopted children. But when he chooses us, and the Spirit of God sets us apart for Him, He gives us the family name. And with the family name also comes the reflection of the family image. We have adopted children on different generations in our family, and we will periodically say, is that nurture or nature? But they were like that, and you know, once in a while, we'll say to one of them, they say, well, you know, you got that from great-grandpa, whatever, and they just kind of look at us like, you forgot, didn't you? That's what he's talking about here. We, as his children, 
we reflect the family's image. You see, with Jesus, Satan for the very first time in all of human history experienced defeat. In Jesus, it was the only time that Satan had aggressively tempted any human being and they had not succumbed to the temptation and sinned. Adam did in a perfect world. Abraham did in an imperfect world. Moses did in a foreign world. David did in a royal world. But Jesus, for 40 days and night, faced intense pressure. Later on, he's going to say, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just exactly like we are, and yet without sin. Every time you fail in a spiritual battle, still even though the victory has already been declared in all Though we know the outcome of the score, there is a raging cosmic conflict still taking place, and we are still facing continual challenges and temptations to fail. You cannot say that you don't understand this, this temptation. Was, nobody's ever faced this before. And the answer is nobody you know might have, but I know one that has. He has been tempted in every way, like you, and yet without sin. So he's not ashamed to call us brothers. You know, growing up, there are times when you, especially if you're a small town in Nebraska, and you, you go to school and somebody says something about your sister or your brother, and it's like, oh, how embarrassing. You, know, it's like, you, just, you just don't want to associate. Or I know who your father is, and you're like, oh, now what happened? You know, Jesus is never ashamed of his brothers and sisters. That we are that. Just a few texts. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. We are the children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him. In order that we might be glorified with him. The family image. Bearing the family name. Means that people are going to hate you. Jesus said they hated me. They will hate you as well. That, that, that's part of the family image. It's, it's hard out there. It's difficult. He's saying to them. It's this little church in Rome. Don't give up. You didn't think that they were going to throw ticker tape parades for you or something. Didn't you? That every, your very existence is a, is, a, is a jab. A stick in the eye. Kind of a sense of conviction. That. It, you are his children if, in fact, you suffer with him. But the beauty is that those who do endure in their suffering will also be glorified with him. He says in Matthew chapter 25, those who endure to the end are those who will be saved. We're not rescued, we're not assured of our salvation because we got it out and we endure. It's the flip that's true. We got it out and endure because we are genuinely his children. Or Galatians chapter 4 verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the Holy Spirit, who stirs us to cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. So you are no longer a slave, but now you are a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. Or Titus chapter 3. 
When the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but He saved us according to His own great mercy, by the washing of regeneration, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that by being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're heirs and fellow heirs. They understood that on a level we don't, to be an heir. As I said before, our grandson Tate, and he's here this summer, he said, hey, Papa, I just wanted to know. He's always teasing me about how old I am. I think he says, like, you know, Papa's about to go, and I want to make sure. He says, I'm mentioned in your will, aren't I? And I said, yeah, I've got a line in there that says, hi, Tate. I just wanted you to know it's coming. When they're talking about heirs here, he's talking about, in their culture, the eldest got two-thirds of the estate, and everybody else divided the remaining third. When you become brothers with Christ, you get an equal share. He humbled himself and is willing to divide it equally. What he gets, you get. That's what he's talking about. God is restoring us to the original purpose for which he created us, and that is in order that we might rule over his world. His his one mission in all of this rescue, according to Hebrews and other texts, is this, that every human being will ultimately understand that Jesus, the Son of God, is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that He is the sovereign one over all. And that's our big brother, and he's not ashamed of that. And for that reason, his joy becomes our joy. Here he cites from Psalm 22. We read it, and it's just this little blip pulled out of Psalm 22. But when the Hebrew reader, the first reader heard it, they thought in terms of the whole psalm. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Turn back in your Bible to Psalm 22. This is one of the rich texts, one of the messianic text this is this is where the, the words of jesus on the cross become real my god my god why have you forsaken me why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning oh my god i cry by day but you do not answer and by night but i find no rest yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of israel if you are fathers trusted in you are fathers trusted they trusted and you delivered them To you they cried and they were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But me, I am a worm. I'm not a man. Scorned by mankind, despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They they make mouths at me. They wag their heads at me. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let them rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan, they 
surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands. I can count all of my bones. They stare. They gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. And then Hebrews 2, quote, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. They understood. I read it, and I'm saying, well, it's great. It's a great congregational gathering time, and they're all singing great songs together. No, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. When? When life is as dark as it can possibly be. When all hope seems to have been lost. When it seems that even God himself has forsaken me. Even then, I will speak blessing of your great name. Even then, my voice will be the one that leads the gathered congregation in singing your praises. And again, from Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah said, I will put my trust in him. Verse 17, verse 18, Behold, I and the children that God has given me. They understood. Isaiah chapter 8 was like a hundred years before the discipline that was coming from the Assyrians on the nation of Israel because of their waywardness and their rebellion before Nebuchadnezzar would come and wreak havoc in their nation. And then he said, even in those moments when life seems absolutely out of control and impossible, even then, I will trust in you. Our Savior was perfected through the pain. It says in chapter 2, verse 10, as a result of that battle that was won on the field, the great champion of our salvation leads this great triumph, as we said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. Thanks be to God who always leads us in His triumph in Christ Jesus and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. He brings many sons to glory. He leads us from our captivity to sin and to Satan to become citizens in His glorious kingdom. He who submitted to a Roman governor at his trial now serves sovereignly over all. He who once wore the crown of thorns now wears the crown of the victor. He who lay lifeless in a cold tomb now sits alive on his glorious throne. And he who came to bear our shame has proudly welcomed us as brothers into his glorious home. So what? So we, the redeemed, when we walk through the darkest of our hours, can by God's grace tell of the greatness of His name.
We don't curse Him. We don't blaspheme Him. Though we don't understand and we know that our God is a good God at all times. And when the congregation assembles, our voice joins their voices in singing of His incredible, glorious wisdom. And when life seems the most impossible, even then we will trust in His gracious love. They were strangers in a foreign land. They were outcasts from their family. They were atheists in the eyes of their former spiritual leaders. They were suspected terrorists in the eyes of the political authorities. They were slowly losing their grip on their faith. And they were longing for a word of hope. God's grand design places all His created universe under the authority of His one and only Son, Jesus the Christ. So the cosmic conflict rages on, but the victory has already been won. Our Savior has come, and sin's slaves have been rescued and set free. And former servants of Satan have been welcomed as citizens of Christ's glorious kingdom. But the most amazing part of all is he doesn't set captives free to be citizens only of his kingdom, but rather he makes us brothers and sisters in a family. And as shameful as we are in us, he finds great delight. Some of you need to hear the message of hope that we have in Jesus. If you do not turn in the darkness of your hour to Jesus, where else will you go? Only Jesus is enough. Receive this benediction. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.